0: Stand up. I have a question. You do? Okay. What, what, what's with the candles? What's with the candles? Why did everyone light the candles? So yeah, well, we can go over that. It's, okay. one of the, it's one of the topics that we cover. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> it's a good question. Let us pray to the Lord. Lord, have mercy. Illumine our hearts, O Master, who lovest mankind, with the pure light of Thy divine knowledge, and open the eyes of our mind to the understanding of Thy gospel teachings. Implant plant in us also the fear of thy blessed commandments, that trampling down all carnal desires we may enter upon a spiritual manner of living, both thinking and doing such things are so well-pleasing unto thee, for thou art the illumination of our souls and bodies, O Christ our God. And unto thee we ascribe glory together with thine unoriginate Father, and thine all holy good and life-giving Spirit, now and ever, and unto ages of ages. Amen. Christ is in our midst. He is in our midst. Okay. I Christ is risen question about um a certain practice of picking the bread up and handing it out to people. Yeah. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So <clears throat> someone today said, nothing, no." And so I asked somebody else, they said, "Only the orthodox give the bread." Oh, yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's usually it's cuz it's like you're a bit vi- like if it's it's like when you have a visitor, you don't want them to come into your kitchen and start serving the table like it's a hospitality thing you know what I mean so let us hand out and then when you become orthodox then you can say okay I'm this is my kitchen too And you know what I mean yeah yeah that was a little tip I gave you guys recently just kind of hold it up I'm already I already got one thank you So you guys have questions and I have answers. No. The church the church has answers. But I do want to read something to you. We're big on the lives of the saints in the Orthodox Church. Have you noticed that? We're big on the lives of the saints. Yeah. You know, we talked about this talk about the saints. Um, because there's a living continuity of the experience of faith and of the life in Christ by the grace of the Holy Spirit which has continued from the time of Christ and the apostles to the the present. And so we even have contemporary saints. Like actually, we just learned about the official recognition of someone who many people have honored as a saint for many years. Her name is uh, Matushka Olga. Matushka is um, Matushka is the name for a priest's wife in the Russian tradition. We have terms of endearment, honor, endearment for the clergy and for their wives. So in, in Russian they say Matushka in Arabic which is our background even though we're all American, con- most, mostly American converts. We say Huria. So like my wife it's called Huria Kara. It means like, it means mother. Huria. One of our friends was on a pilgrimage overseas and kept talking about someone named Huria Martha. And finally, someone confronted and said, why do you keep calling this person by their ethnicity? Why are you calling this person Korean Martha? (laughs) No, we're not not saying Korean. No, Huria, like in our tradition, that's a priest's wife. So anyway, um, Presbytera in, uh, in Greek. So, each of the different origins, each of the different backgrounds have a different name. In, uh, in Arabic, also a loving term, a loving term of endearment for a priest is uh, Abuna. Abuna, so if you ever hear anyone say that. In Greek, it's uh, a little more familiar. Papa, people say Papa, you know. Yeah, father. So, anyway, but uh, anyway, we love the we love the the saints in the church. And one of one of the, a contemporary, Matushka Olga, was just officially recognized by the Orthodox Church as a saint. And so, there's going to be a process of putting service like service texts together to celebrate her honor in the days to come. I'll try to send something out to you guys this week because she was a native of Alaska. And so we have, you know, we have, I could like to call it local sanctity. So we're not just talking about some Greek person from the 7th century or a Russian person from the 19th century or something like that. We're talking about those who lived in this century, you know, this and last century, because now we just turned turn the corner and into the 21st not too long ago but uh, but anyway I wanted to read the live the the lives of one of the saints for today just to give you a sense of of what what we're into I like to call it you have the old testament you have the new testament in the bible the two sections of the scripture but what happens after that and I like to to call the life of uh, the church and the lives of the saints kind of like a third Testament. You know, it's the continuation of what Christ and the apostles began. And so we have the life today of St. John, the merciful, also known as St. John, the Almsgiver, And I'd like to read this to you just for your edification. And because I wanted to talk about St. John in the homily today, but I just didn't think I'd have enough time. So let me read a little bit about uh, this saint who we commemorate today. And then I'll answer your question. And then we'll see if we get around to our topic for the, for the day on the structure of the church. You know, the class that we do is it has a little fluidity to it. So um, <clears throat> we'll get to our topic if we can, but let's get to know St. John the Merciful. He was the Archbishop of Alexandria. Do you know, guys know where Alexandria is? Has anyone been there? Yeah, have have you ever been there? Anyone? No, me neither. But Egypt, North Egypt. So St. John was the scion of an illustrious family from Amethyst and Cyprus, so he was originally Cypriot. Urged by his parents, he married and had several children who, as God allowed, died in the early youth at the same time as his wife. So he was left alone without wife and children. Taking this loss as a call to free himself from every worldly care, John put himself entirely into the hands of God. And on the very day of his consecration, which is when someone is elevated to the role of a bishop through through the prayers of the church, the day of his consecration as Patriarch of Alexandria in 610, John gathered together with all the clergy and the officials of the wealthy metropolis of Egypt. Metropolis is a metropolitan area. Originally, you know, Christians would group together in population dense areas. And so, you know, you call the Seattle metropolitan area. You know, so that's where the title. I don't know if I mentioned this last time, but that's where the title "metropolitan" for a bishop came from. Just a practical title. A metropolitan is someone who is a bishop of over a metropolis. Um, a metropolitan area so there would be population dense areas where there were naturally as people were converting to Christianity more Christians so there would be a, a cathedral in the city the, but but people didn't only just live in the city and you couldn't fit everyone in the same building so they started doing churches in the city as well where priests would serve and then also in the the hinterlands too, you know, the areas surrounding the city. Uh, and the, the bishop would serve the, the communities in that general metro- metropolitan area. And that's what a, a diocese eventually became. But he's the patriarch. So we have, do you guys remember the structure? You have a priest in the parish. You have a bishop who oversees the, the priests in a certain area, like ours is the West Coast. So priests... Bishop, The bishop is like the priest to the priests, the shepherd to the priests. And then then an area, a large area like a country, will be broken up into several dioceses, and you'll have a metropolitan or archbishop who is kind of the leader to the bishops, the shepherd to the bishops. And then there are five ancient patriarchates in the Orthodox Church. And uh, do you know what they are? No, nope. they broke away from the Orthodox in the fourth century. Um, so they've not they haven't been in communion with the, the I mean, canonical Orthodox Church for a long time. But um, so it's It's K, in words, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, Antioch, Antioch Alexandria, Alexandria and, Houston, Rome. and Rome originally. Yeah. Until when the great schism. The, the not so great schism, <laughs> but we call it the Great Schism in the eleventh century, is when it when it really took. Place, but there was a lot leading up to it. So, so then we all have kind of a, a mother country. There were, there were five centers of Christianity in the early days of the church. And those are the, the, the original kind of ancient patriarchates of the, of the Christian church. And so he became the, the patriarch of Alexandria, North Africa. So he gathered all of the clergy when he became the patriarch and officials of the wealthy metropolis of Egypt. And he sent, them an exact, uh, he, sa- he sent them to make an exact registration of his masters. Make a list of all of my masters. As he called the poor and the beggars. He called the poor and the beggars his masters. Whom God puts in our way so that by giving them alms, we will win the kingdom of heaven, so to speak. And there were found to be over 7,500 indigent persons in the city at that time. The patriarch commanded that they were to be fed every day and given clothes they needed. He often said to God in his prayer, We will soon see, Lord, which of us two will win the contest. Thou whoever givest me good gifts, or I who will never cease distributing them to the poor. Isn't that a beautiful approach? For I well know that there is nothing of mine that's not owing to thy mercy, which upholds my life. Such like purity of heart. Indeed, the saint's compassion for the poor was measureless, and his almsgiving boundless, like the waters of the Nile, which cover the land of Egypt every year to make it fertile. So he was surnamed the Merciful, after his Master, Christ, who is the source of all mercy. He could not encounter a poor or afflicted person without shedding tears, and without taking his sorrow upon himself. It reminds me of a, I think, a Georgian saying from the Republic of Georgia, not from the state. When, when you see someone who's suffering, you say, May your sorrow pass upon me. St. John was like that. May your sorrow pass upon me. Drawing upon the treasure of the church, he gave without calculation. As Christ has taught us, he made no distinction in giving between the good and the bad, the deserving and the undeserving. On one occasion, a poor man who had already received alms presented himself three times more to the saint in three different disguises. When this was pointed out to John, he ordered them to give the man twice as much, saying, maybe he is Jesus, my Savior, who has come on purpose to put me to the test. Yet the greater the alms giver, we're too clever for God sometimes, you know, in our own estimation. Yet the greater his alms giving, without thought or the amount, or for the morrow, he wasn't worried about tomorrow, the more God increased the gifts to the church so that the people experienced the truth of the Savior's promise. From Matthew 6, do not be anxious about your life, what you shall eat or what you shall drink, nor about your body, what you shall put on, But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things shall be yours as well. One of the clergy appointed to distribute alms by the patriarch gave a rich man fallen on hard times only a third of the sum that the saint had said he was to have, thinking it unreasonable to empty the treasury for one person. But he was put to shame when St. John revealed to him that a noble woman who had meant to make a huge gift to the church gave in the end only one-third of the amount that she had first intended. When the Persians invaded the province of Syria in 614 and took the city of Jerusalem with much bloodshed, many refugees made their way to Alexandria. St. John received them as brethren, comforted them, built hospitals and great hostels for them, and used up all the resources of the church to feed and maintain them. At the same time, he sent ships laden with grain and other foodstuffs to Palestine, and workmen to rebuild the ruined churches. <clears throat> the sick and needy whom he visited saw the presence of Christ reflected in his person. When anyone tried to thank him for his kindnesses, he would immediately stop the speaker saying, No more of that, brother. I haven't shed my blood for thou yet, which is what our Savior, the Savior asks. Like I've given you money, but I haven't shed my blood for you. Every Wednesday and Saturday... He would station himself at his church door waiting for anyone who might come asking to settle disputes or to reconcile enemies. No one ever heard him speak an idle word or condemn anyone, even when the sin was plain to see. In fact, he only saw the good or good intentions, presumed that sinners had repented in secret, and took care not to claim for himself the judgment that belongs to God alone. He thanked those who spoke ill of him or who insulted him, for reminding him of his sins Mm -hmm. and saw to it that they were given larger alms than the rest. When conversing with the proud, the hard-hearted, and other sinners, the Holy Patriarch, greatly desiring their amendment, used to attribute to himself the sins that he wished to correct in them and would ask them to pray that he repent of them. With unfailing patience, he exhorted the faithful to be humble and to repent by reminding them of the wonders that God has wrought for us in creating the world and sending his own Son to save us and in having patience with us despite our innumerable sins and offenses. But more than by word, he would, like the holy prophets, convey the teaching of the Holy Scripture by his actions. So one Sunday, as he was serving the Divine Liturgy in the cathedral, surrounded by his clergy and the whole people, the patriarch stopped all of a sudden before the words of the consecration, told the deacon to repeat the litanies, the prayers for the people, for the world. And he sent to look for one of his clergy who bore him a grudge and had not come to church. When the man appeared, the bishop bowed to the ground before him in tears, asking his forgiveness. Only upon their reconciliation and embrace did he go back to the altar and proceed with the service, having observed the commandment of the Lord to the letter. Saint John loved the monks and went beyond them in his asceticism, his spiritual struggle self deprivation, for all that he had for, for all that he uh, excuse me, for all that he had once been a married man, he settled two monastic communities in the neighborhood of his cathedral and provided for their needs himself. He asked them in turn to pray for him and for the church during their common prayer, and for their own salvation during the remainder of the time in their cells of every material concern thanks to the especial care of the patriarch in his opulent palace where there was nothing that he called his own the saint inhabited a comfortless cell knowing this a worthy citizen presented him one day with a very expensive bed cover wow that night the saint was unable to sleep but kept blaming himself as he thought of all the poor cold and hungry people at his door while he lay in luxury next day he sold the bed cover and gave the money away. However, his benefactor happening to come across his present up for sale in the merchant's shop. He bought it again and made John take it back, who sold it once more for charity. As neither of them would give in, the bed cover passed through their hands a many good times, as was the means whereby John indirectly prevailed on the rich man to give away a great fortune to the poor. That is a sweet story. Notwithstanding, we're almost done. Notwithstanding his charity and extreme humility, St. John dealt firmly with the monophysite heretics. This was a, a group of Christians who, who um, broke away from the church in the early days. He loved them and did them all the good that he was able, but was unyielding in condemning their errors and forbidding the Orthodox to worship and pray with them. So he would love them but he wouldn't let there be confusion about the difference in belief on who christ is he wouldn't compromise when famine and pestilence ravaged the city the saint was the first to comfort the sick and to bury the dead he exhorted the faithful to pray earnestly for the departed and took occasion of such times of afflictions to remind them of the fragility of our life and of the urgency of repentance some years after the fall of jerusalem alexandria in its turn was threatened by the Persians. St. John, at the request of Nikitas, the governor of Egypt, returned to Cyprus, where he died, in 619, at the age of 64, giving thanks to God for having left him nothing of the very great riches of which he had been given the stewardship of for the benefit of the poor. Shortly before his death, there appeared to him the noble virgin that he had first seen at the age of 15. She had told him then that she was that she was mercy in person who impelled Christ to take flesh for our salvation, and she had promised to open the kingdom of heaven to John, as some time after his death a fragrant myrrh flowed from the body of the Holy Hierarch for the joyful consolation of the faithful. So, to the prayers of our Holy Father, John the Merciful, may the Lord Jesus Christ, our God, have mercy on us and save us. So these are the kinds of things that we have in the lives of the saints. The, the full collection is called the Synaxarion, and <clears throat> there are different places where you can access them. There's a multi-volume set, which is what I have here, and most people can't invest in it. That's why we have it at the church, so that I can read stories from the lives of the saints to you at different times. But there is a little, a little two-volume set called. Do you know what I'm writing? The prologue of Alfred, and uh, don't worry about the title. It's just it's just an abbreviated Lives of Saints in two volumes. It's kind of like devotional reading you can do every day by Saint Nikolai Velimirovich, and uh, he was a Serbian Saint Nikolai. He he actually served in the United States. But he put together a little abbreviated Lives of Saints that people could realistically read at home every day with a little homilies and reflections and even some questions for contemplation. Think about Christ ascending Golgotha. You know, what would you have done if you were an onlooker that day? How would you have felt? You know, those kinds of things to prompt us to to do a little reflection. And uh, so we have this it's a little pricey, but good books are worth investing in, you know, rather than getting tons of chips and coffee and soda and stuff like that, that all adds up. Maybe just invest in, you know, a couple of, a couple of good books along the way that I am happy to recommend to you. But, um, but also, if you don't have, you know, like, I don't know how much it runs, like maybe $100 for these two hardback volumes right now. There are a lot of resources available online, too. So, if you go to the OCA.org website, Orthodox Church in there's a Lives of Saints page. And you can just get on there for free. Lives of Saints. It's really nice. Yeah, usually. Yeah, there's a link to the Lives of the Saints. And that's the most thorough one that's available online. So. Yeah, and you can look up by name, or you can look up by date. That's probably the best resource online, the most thorough. So you asked about candles. And I'll I'll cover the use of candles and lampadas. We've talked about it in the past, but let's talk about it again. Because I don't know how long it's been. It might have been, you know, a year ago or so. Um, But we'll talk about candles and their symbolism. And... uh, and then we'll transition into talking about the structure of the church. I think we have enough time to do both today. So, lit candles and icon lamps, or lampadas, they have a special symbolic meaning in the Christian church. And if possible, usually no Christian service will be held without them. Now, in the Old Testament, when the first temple of God was built on earth, the tabernacle services were held inside of the um, the temple with lamps lit, as the Lord had ordained in Exodus 40. So if you read of the Old Testament, where God gave us the plan for how the worship should take place, it says, You shall bring in the, temp- the, bring in the table and arrange the things that are to be set in order on it. And you shall bring in the lampstand and light its lamps. And he lit the lamps before the Lord, and the, as the Lord had commanded Moses. So following the example of the Old Testament church, the lighting of candles and lampadas was without fail included in the New Testament church's services. And the Acts of the Apostles mentions the lighting of lamps during the services in the time of the apostles. Thus in Troas, where Christ's followers used to gather on the first day of the week to break bread, that is to celebrate the Eucharist, it says in Acts 20, there were many lights in the upper chamber there were many lamps in the upper room where they were gathered together. This reference to the large number of lamps signifies that they were not used simply for lighting, but for their spiritual significance. And the early Christian ritual of carrying a lamp into the evening service led to the present-day order of Vespers with its entry and the singing of the ancient hymn, O Glad Some Light. If you've been to Vespers, you hear that. That's one of the fixtures in Vespers. Oh gladsome light of the holy glory and so on. Yeah, do you know do you want to do a solo? <laughs> but it's it's about the unwaning light of God's love for us. Even when we're in the face of physical darkness, the light of God's life giving continues to illuminate us. And so we sing that Usually after dark, unless it's the summer time, and then it's kind of, it's not physically dark, but we live in a world that also has plenty of, has its fill of spiritual darkness as well. But, uh, so, the, that hymn expresses the Christian teaching of spiritual light that illumines man, with Christ as the source, and the grace-bestowing light. In order of the, and the order of the morning service, Orthros is also linked to the idea of the uncreated light of Christ, manifested in his Incarnation and resurrection. When we do that um, part toward the end of Orthro service, the Orthro service called the Great Doxology. Does anyone know what the first line is? We did it this morning. Glory, Glory to thee, who has shown us the us light. It begins like that. The theme of light is prevalent. Go to your Bible concordance and look up the word light. And you'll you'll see, you know, light and lamp. If you go in your Bible concordance or, you know, go online to a Bible gateway or blue letter Bible or something like that. I just found a little, do you know what a concordance is? Yeah. A concordance is, it is a, originally it was a text, but now everything's online. You know, you have digital concordances, but you can look up words and look up, look up the word Jesus, for example. And it'll list all or most of the verses that have the word Jesus. And so all of the references throughout the Bible. So if you look up the word lamp in the concordance, then it'll give you a list of the Bible verses that have the word lamp in it. And it's a helpful tool when you're looking up specific topics. When I was doing biblical studies in college, we would do what's called a word study study. Like, what does the word mercy mean? Not just what I think it means, but like, what does the word mercy mean? And So we would go and throughout the scripture, we would do a, a long list of everywhere that the word mercy or a variation of the word mercy took place. We would read all of those passages and try to get a little context, too. And then you would come to conclusions about what it means or the different ways in which words are used. Because words bear different meaning also based on how they're used sometimes. You know? I really love the I really uh love coffee, someone might say. It doesn't mean the same as I really love my family. Same same word, at least in English. You know what I mean? So you would get that that there's a little fluidity to the language, too. And Words are used in ways other than what we presume at times, so it's helpful to come to understand the biblical worldview and things like that. So, go on, you can go into your concordance, look up word like lamp, light, incense. That's an interesting one. You know, if you're if you're wondering about incense, and so on. So, the fathers of the church also witnessed to the spiritual significance of candles. In the second century, we have a quote from early Christian Tertullian. He said, we never hold a service without candles. So 2nd century, we're talking the 100s, you know, very, very early in the church. We never hold a service without candles. We use them not just to dispel night's gloom. We also hold our services in daylight, but in order to represent this Christ, the uncreated light, without whom we would be in broad daylight, but wander as if lost in darkness. The blessed Jerome wrote in the 4th century that all the Eastern churches, in all the Eastern churches candles are lit even in the daytime when one is to read the Gospels. In truth, not just to dispel darkness, but as a sign of joy in order, under that factual light, to feel that light with a capital L, that light of which we read in the Psalms, Thy word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path and you shall receive. You can see that there's that that there's a a living experience that has carried forward. And Saint Sophronios, Patriarch of Jerusalem, wrote in the seventh century. So we're working our way up, you know. um, Lampadas and candles represent the eternal light, and also the light which shines from the righteousness from from the righteous. From those, it's like you and I are those. Christ is the light, and we're illumined by Him. And so we call the mind those who live who were the the golden lights, you could say, of of the church. The saints are often referred to as that. And the Holy Fathers of the Seventh Ecumenical Council decreed that in the Orthodox Church, the holy icons and relics, the cross of Christ, and the gospel were to be honored by sensing and lighting of candles. The blessed Simeon of Thessalonica, 15th century, the that candles are also lit before the icons of the saints for the sake of their good deeds that shine in this world. So you can see there's practical, I mean, we, we use the candles also because um, it helps to illuminate whatever it is that we're doing and looking at. But also it always, anytime, this is, this is the, the Christian worldview actually, like anytime we see a light, we think of Christ who is the light of the world. And so we, more than just decorating our churches with lights and candles, it's more than just a mere decoration, although it is very beautiful, but it's bearing witness to that, to to our faith. Using God's creation, the stuff of God's creation to glorify the Creator. Orthodox faithful light candles before icons as a sign of their faith and hope in God's help. It's always sent to all who turn to Him. And to his saints with faith and prayers. And the candle is also a symbol of our burning and grateful love for God. During the reading of the 12 Passion Gospels on Holy Friday, for the, well, it's on, we do it on Thursday, Holy Thursday evening, but it's according to the themes of Holy Friday. The faithful hold candles, reliving our Lord's suffering and burning with our love for him. It's an, it's an ancient custom of Russian Orthodox Christians to take home a candle from. The service and make the sign of the cross over their door. So they take a little bit of the, they take the candle. Don't light your house on fire, but they burn like you can get a little soot from the, you know, the candle and go, do a little cross in your entryway into your house. And so on. Okay. I have a lot more. Holy baptism, which we just did yesterday. It's celebrated with the priest vested and candles lit. And three candles are lit usually before the baptismal font as a sign that the baptism is accomplished in the name of the Holy Trinity. And the person and the persons to be baptized, they hold lit candles in their hands as an expression of joy at the entry of a new member into the Church of Christ. In the wedding ceremony, the priest hands the bride and groom lit candles before, they, as they, before the service as they receive the sacrament of matrimony, throughout which they hold the candles as a symbol of their profound love for each other and their desire to live with the blessing of the church, and so on. So, one of the things I like about candles is it remind, they remind me of who I am, or who we're meant to be. Like a candle is not serving its purpose unless it's burning unless it's expending itself you know and and that's a good lesson for each and every one of us a candle can look good and smell good but it isn't really it's not it's not illuminating the darkness if it's not lit and therefore what it's going away i mean it, you know it's decreasing like like st john the baptist said of christ he must increase and i must decrease So we can learn a lot of lessons from candles. And also one of the things I like to bring up, especially in wedding services, when the two are holding their candles. Did I do this to you? Did I blow out your candle? Did I do that for you? I do that every once in a while. I try not to, you know, but I'll say, watch this. They're holding their candles. They look so nice and beautiful. And I'll go, okay, don't get too terribly scandalized by this, but watch this. And I'll blow out one of the candles. And will say, okay, now look, your candle is still lit. You turn it over and light your wife's candle or light your husband's candle. That's what your life is supposed to be like. What if both of your candles go out? Uh-oh, I have the eternal flame. I have access to the eternal flame and I'll help light both of your candles. But it's just, you know, so there's, a, there's just, sim, you know, more than just Symbolism. Not like one thing represents another thing. But in the Greek language and in the Orthodox understanding, symbolism is the bringing together of realities that we've separated, like we've separated the spiritual from the physical. But that's an artificial s- separation. That's a false dichotomy, a byproduct of our, of our fall. And so we, we have a very, you could say, a very kind of earthy faith, you know. We, uh, we love to employ God's creation. We're kind of reclaiming the stuff of God's creation again to, to glorify Him. And it comes in handy, you know. We anoint with oil. We light the candles. We use the incense. We bake the, the people bake the bread that's used for Holy Communion, you know, and so on. So we take what God has given us. We, we offer it to Him. And then we receive a blessing in return. Pretty awesome. And someone told me recent, uh, a while back, uh, when we were having some storms and things, and the f- power was going out, I got a message. Father, what are we going to do if the power goes out? So we'll still have church. We have candles, you know. So, um, So candles and lampadas are lit in all church services with a wide variety of spiritual and symbolic meanings. For it's God who said, Let light shine out of darkness and who is shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ, 2 Corinthians 4, 6. You know, it's God who commanded... Yeah, okay. I have that passage twice for some reason in my notes. So too, candles are lit in the church. Um, and they're also an expression of the worshiper's adoration and love for God and their sacrifices to him. And At the same time, their joy and the spiritual triumph of the church. The candles by their burning remind us of the unwaning light, which is the kingdom of heaven, and makes the souls glad. And uh, so I'll end with a a quote from St. John of Kronstadt, and then we'll switch gears. Yeah, what is it? What about at home? Yeah, that's a good question. Should the candle be lit all the time? So that is... A pious practice to have an oil lamp burning at home, twenty-four-seven. Now, not everyone can do that. You know, t- typically it would be an, an oil lamp with a float wick with olive oil. And I can show you guys. I need to do some more demonstrations. You know, because you know, Orthodoxy is a way of life, and the, you know, there's a culture. Like most Americans, don't know how to do a, an oil lamp with olive oil and a float wick, for example, or light a sensor. Which I still need to show you guys how to do a how little, do like, a, little a little hand nice. sensor. But, um, but anyway, you know, it's proper for us to use lamps and candles at home if you can. I mean I've had some people say, like, I'm renting an apartment, and they said, "We can't light a candle or, you know sm- or use incense, at, you know, so. Um, <clears throat> So sometimes you can't. I mean, we're not, again, we're not superstitious about it. It's like, if you don't light candles at home, you're not holy enough for something like that. Um, But I I generally have, I have an oil lamp going in front of my icons. Most of the time. And then when I go to prayer, like a specific prayer time, I have a little glass container with some sand in it. And I put a candle in there. And I light that candle during the prayer time. So the, the, the candle is kind of practical for me. The, the lamp is just, I have like 40 icons on my wall in my office area. And the lamp is just in front of one of them. Yeah, yeah. But, uh, but then when I light the candle, it's usually a bigger candle. And it helps me with my book. And my son and I like to do our prayers with the lights out. You know, dark and so we we'll light the candle, but I also have a hurricane lamp too that I that I use at times. Right. I always wonder, like on Thursday nights, when we're doing this, I'm like, "How is he reading that? I I, I, can't, I can't even see this part in front of my face. He's yeah. reading that uh, a story. I'm like, How's he doing that? So, trying trying to read, yeah. So if someone's coming up and they're lighting a candle here, yeah. they're usually doing it because they. It's a type of prayer, yeah. I mean, to, to, everything that we do is in a, a, a form of prayer, you know. And people will even, they'll even take a candle and they'll light it. And they'll, they'll say like a little prayer, like St. Paul or, you know, to Christ asking, like, you know, Lord Jesus Christ, have mercy on my mom. And it represents a prayer for your mom or your father. Um, for yourself, for your family. Like, I like to get one for each of my family members. And I'll go up and I'll ask for St. Paul to pray for my family members and light a candle for each one of them. And uh, you don't have to be orthodox to come in and uh, to light a candle. So if at any point in time you want to give it a try, you can, rather than just kind of going, what are they doing there, you know, or something. Um, you're, You're welcome to do that. That's one way that anyone can participate. And I notice they always damp them out before they burn out. We try That's to do that. The kids, so yeah, it's it's kind of sweet. The kids like to do that. Yeah. Now, our our candles are we put them in sand. It's practical, you know. You don't have to have in some in some Russian churches, stu- Russian styles. They have these big brass holders with all these little little candle holders, and they put them in. And you have a limited number of candle holders in those candle stands, and they get really messy because the wax drips all over them. And if they burn down, you know, the wax gets stuck in the little cup and stuff. But uh, here we just have sand. It's easy to put the candles in the sand. But if it burns all the way down into the sand, then it gets the wax just, it gets... um, The wax gets kind of it it liquefies and then dries and then you have this big clump of (coughs) wax and sand that you have to clean up. And so we try to do it before it gets to that point, because it's easier to to clean that way. And then if we if we have these little stubs this is another just practical thing, if we have these little stubs that are fairly clean, we gather them up and we take them back to the monastery and they can melt them and filter them and they can reuse the wax. So it's pretty cool. So that's so that's one of the reasons most people don't know that they just kind of think oh before it gets to the sand we want to get, but we'll take the the remaining and little nubs of candles and the nuns appreciate that. We get our candles from the Orthodox Monastery in Golden Dale. So There was something else I was thinking about saying, but it slipped to my mind. Candles, lighting candles, sand. Flowers? No, I think I'm good. I do have one more quote that I can share with you to conclude. St. John of Kronstadt, who reposed in 1909. So we worked our way through the centuries. St. John is is really wonderful. There's a book called My Life in Christ. Where now they've published it as two volumes. But I actually have a, a, um, an original first publication uh, by St. John of Kronstadt. But uh, it's a really good book. My Life in Christ. And it's one of those that I would kind of wholeheartedly recommend to anyone. Kronstadt is a Russian port city. It kind of reminds me of Everett. I think if I ever started an Orthodox church in Everett, which I hope to do in my lifetime, I would like to name it after St. John of Kronstadt. It was a port, port area, um, on, you know, on the water, a lot of commerce and a lot of poverty. So, you know, we're right on the sound there in Everett. have got the Navy there. And it's an area where there's a lot of financial struggle, too. And So St. John was, was known for just distributing. Like People would give him money. Here's for your poor, they would say. And he'd have, they'd give him a little envelope. He'd put it in his pocket. He'd run into someone who was in need. He'd just hand the envelope to them. I mean, just this really kind of reminds me of St. John, the alms giver, in certain ways. But uh, a little reflection by St. John on... Candles and lamps. He says The candles and lamps burning in church remind us of spiritual light and fire. As of the Lord's word, I am a light into the world, that whosoever believeth on me should not abide in darkness, and again I'm come to send fire on the earth, and what will it will I if it be if it be already kindled? And again, let your loins be girded about and your lights burning, and ye yourselves like unto men that wait for the Lord when he will return from the wedding, that when he cometh and knocketh, they may open unto him immediately. Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father which is in heaven. Do not grudge, he says, do not grudge burning a wax taper. Taper is a word for a candle. Don't but grudge burning a wax taper before the image of the Lord during prayer. Remember that you burn it, burn it before the light inaccessible before him who enlightens you with his light. Your candle is as though a burnt offering to the Lord. Let it be a gift to God from your whole heart. Let it remind you that you yourself should also be burning and shining light. He was, says the Lord of our forerunner, John the Baptist, he was a burning and a shining light. I offer light to the Lord in order that he may bestow the light of grace the spiritual light upon me that he may lead me from the darkness of sin into the light of the knowledge of God and of virtue i offer fire that the fire of the grace of the holy ghost may be kindled in my heart and that it may be quenched and, and may quench the fire of the vices of that miserable heart i bring a light that i may become a light burning and shining to all there in the church It is well to place candles before the images, the icons, but it's still better if you bring as a sacrifice to God the fire of your love for Him and your neighbor. It's well that one should accompany the other, but if you place candles before the images and have no love for God and your neighbor in your heart, if you're grasping, if you do not live in peace with others, then your offering to God is useless. So there you go. So, don't, we don't just light candles in the church, you know, and, and say, oh, good, self-satisfied, you know. It's deeper and beautiful. So, okay. I'm going to continue on with talking about the structure of the church now, and I think we should be able to end our um, session topic. On the structure of the church today. If you guys would like to grab the book, pass it around. Take one, pass it around. And we're page marked at one seventy-three. One seventy-three. Right, we're, you're at the end we're right getting ready to go to is what I've... We've got a little more to do. Okay. Yeah, so we're on uh, the last page of We are... I have it up. It's... St. Ignatius terminology eventually became the standard terminology. That's that's where we left off. Let me find it. It's at the bottom of page 169 in your book. In In the the version that I just passed around. No. Page 170. In modern parish life. That's where we left off. Page 170. So, oh yeah, and we're almost done. But you're, you're right. So, we talked about the, the origin of the structure of the church. and In modern parish life, there's usually only one presbyter. What's a presbyter again? A priest, a priest yeah. So, a presbyter... The bishop is the head of a large diocese and may only visit a given parish once every couple of years. How did this come about? And how does the modern structure of the church reflect the ancient practice? In the early years, Christianity was primarily an urban phenomenon. And there was only one church in a given city. And as more people in outlying areas responded to the gospel, however, it became impossible for all of the people in a given area to meet at one place at one time for the Eucharist, which is actually what I was talking about when we were going over the story of St. John. In North Africa, the problem was solved by simply duplicating the existing church structure in every little village. Thus, communities with less than 25 people could end up with a bishop, a council of presbyters and deacons. This, however, proved very impractical, and the practice did not last long. Elsewhere, the bishop of the local church delegated presbyters and deacons to go to the various outlying areas and villages to minister there, creating what we call today parishes. The grouping of parishes around a local church is now called the diocese. And in modern practice, then, the local church is the diocese comprised of its bishop, all of the presbyters, the priests, who are usually appointed as pastors of individual parishes. We talked about that last time. All of the deacons, also attached to individual parishes, and all of the faithful. This situation is the product of the church's t- tremendous growth. It allows for expansion of the church, yet at the same time preserves her basic Trinitarian structure. Because of this Trinitarian structure, each local church is called Catholic. And that that's a that word is a little bit of a hang up for some people, especially who are coming from Protestant backgrounds or or just from a Western cultural background, they say, Catholic? What? I thought you weren't Catholic. Well, no, we're not Roman Catholic. But that word Catholic didn't originate with the Roman Catholic Church. Catholic is a, a word that means full, whole. So each local church is, the fullness of the church is, is present. That is, she is whole and complete, lacking nothing for the salvation of her members. The many churches throughout the world are united by an identical faith and sacramental life and by the communion of their bishops. Churches in a given area, usually but not always, coinciding with national borders, are grouped together. And their bishops meet together regularly in uh, meetings called synods. And a synod just means like a gathering, coming together. The largest synod by far is the Synod of the Church of Russia, chaired by the Patriarch of Moscow. The Synod of the Church of Cyprus, on the other hand, is quite small by comparison. (laughs) Cyprus is a lot smaller than Russia if you look at it on a map. Size, however, has nothing to do with holiness, and this is really important. The dioceses or local churches that make up the Church of Cyprus are no less orthodox, no less possessed of the promises of Christ than the dioceses which make up the Church of Russia. Ultimately, it's the presence of Christ Himself in the Church that makes each and every local church His body. And I've got a little note here for you all. Yeah, His body, the fullness of Him that filleth all in all. So, that's from Ephesians one twenty three. So this is important because... <clears throat> We know from the Bible, like, wherever two or three are gathered in my name, Christ says, there I am in the midst of them. So do you think Christ is any more present when there are a thousand people than when there are two or three people? No. No, and that's the point. So it's not, it's, it's not the size of the community. Size can actually be kind of deceiving, you know, sometimes. Like, um, it gets a little suspicious. Like, what are you doing that's appealing to so many people? What do you spike in your food with, you know, or something like that? And it is harder in larger communities. We've talked about this a little bit. In larger communities, uh, it's harder to to really develop relationships with other people. It's interesting. Studies on church growth and development and uh, community experience show that when people... Break that, the range of about eighty members. People start kind of slipping through cracks. That seems really low to me. The average church in the U.S. has eighty members, by the way. The average church—that's hard to believe too, because a lot of us, a lot of us think of you know big mega churches. Saturation, saturation though. So What's saturation, that? Saturation. So many churches. There are I mean, many. Certain, there are many small so many churches. Yeah. There are many. There are far more small churches than there are large churches. You hear about the big ones, or you see them because they're much more visible. But uh, but that's interesting because you know we have a, a community that that stays right around I don't know fluctuates around like one hundred and fifty range, one hundred and fifty people, um, and I know everyone by name, but I can't but I can't. Uh, I can't chase everyone down all the time, and especially not every week. You know, it's, hard to, it's not realistic to be in touch with everyone every week. So even in a community our size, there are people who kind of come and go, and they kind of fly under the radar a little bit. So don't be that person. You know, I've noticed I spend a lot of time investing in people as they're inquiring into the faith and exploring orthodoxy, and I try to get them in the rhythm of meeting together in person every month or so. For four to six weeks, I tell people. But after they become orthodox, they kind of relax into a little a little bit. And, you know, it's like, hey, it's been three, four months since we've met. What's going on? Did you forget about me? You know? So every once in a while, I'll go through our directory and I'll think, I haven't talked with this or that person for a while. I'm going to check in with them. and You, know, you can't force it. But, But ideally, if we're drawn to Christ, we're we're being drawn into a community of people who love Christ. You know, I drew that little picture of the the triangle last time. As we're drawing near to God, we naturally draw near to one another. Or St. Dorotheos, did you guys hear that last night in the reading at Vespers? St. Dorotheos says it's like like a, a circle with God in the middle, and as we work our way toward the middle, we become closer to one another. It's another good image. So, and one of the famous sayings of the church is, uh, one Christian is no Christian, or we're not saved alone. We're not saved alone. We're not saved individually, because Christ reconciles us to one another and brings us into communion with Him and one another. So while we are, while we do believe in, like there is a personal aspect to our salvation, like each and every one of us has to make a choice to respond. It doesn't result in a, just a personal piety, you know, and I get to go to heaven. <laughs> what about everyone else or something like that. It's um, one of my favorite sayings from a contemporary saint is St. Amphalokios of Patmos. There will be a quiz on that next week. Just. No, we have lots of, you know, lots of names from around the world because orthodoxy is universal. But St. Amphilochios said something so sweet that just hearing this one line completely changed my life. He said, My children, I do not want paradise without you. To his spiritual children, I don't want paradise without you. And I preached some homilies on that too where what if that's the way we encountered everyone? You know, a lot of times we let it go to our head. Like I'm... I'm saved or something like that. And uh, too bad for you. But what if we said, I don't want paradise without you? That would be a big change of heart for a lot of us. So that's that's at the nature of the church is that we're being united in Christ with one another and Christ who is one, you know, who cannot be divided. And so that's why we have such a strong conviction about what the church is. It isn't just a matter of musical preferences or translation preferences or whatever it may be. Um, it's far more than that. So, do we want to read these quotes? Yeah, we've got a couple little quotes from the fathers. Let's read these, and then we'll see if we can touch on the ecumenical councils as we conclude our time together. Just two quotes. One is from St. Ignatius of Antioch. Remember, you can read his epistles by even going online and doing a little search. He says, Let no one do anything that pertains to the Church apart from the bishop. Let that be considered a valid Eucharist, which is under the bishop, or one whom he has delegated. Wherever the bishop shall appear, let there the people be, just as wherever Christ Jesus may be, there is the Catholic Church. Take great care to keep one Eucharist. For there is one flesh of our Lord Jesus Christ and one cup to unite us by his blood. One sanctuary, as there is one bishop, together with all the presbyters and the deacons, my fellow servants. Thus, all your acts may be done according to God's will. So the structure of the church aims at preserving the unity of the faith, again. And remember, every position of leadership should be a position of servant leadership. You know? What did Christ say? Let he who would be the first among you be the servant of all. Be the servant of all. Even the use of the word Eucharist coming from a Protestant background. Mm-hmm. I never heard the word Eucharist. I know. My son attended a Catholic school. Mm-hmm. So Eucharist means a communion. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. It's interesting that the Protestants, they don't say I know, you know, because like we talked about last time, when 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 the Reformation took place, and it's even actually post-Reformation, because a lot of ch- thought of even Reforma- Reformed churches maintained um, the practice of Eucharist on a weekly basis. Traditional Lutherans do for sure, but um, but a lot of the post-Reformation Protestant churches became very anti-catholic. So they, you know, they tr- they did away with everything that would remind them of catholicism, including frequent eucharist, you know, and the use of that terminology. We're not going to call it eucharist because that's what the Catholics call it. We'll call it communion. And so, you know what I mean? It's funny in a way. I mean funny not <laughs> but you know it's just, it is strange. It's funny. And it is kind of, uh, in, you know, kind of, uh, I, I'm a pastor and I struggle, I, I struggle alongside people who, who are, are people, who are humans. <laughs> and so when I, see, when I see human behavior, people doing things like that, it's kind of endearing to me in a way. Because I can see what you're trying to do what's right. I see the good intention. You know, I see the, they don't want something that's, that's corrupted. They don't want... So they're trying to, but we try to fix something. And as we often do, we overcorrect. So, but you're right. Even that is kind of a trigger word in a way for some people. It's like, oh, Eucharist, that's what the Catholics are doing. But, but that's the original term. <laughs> It comes from the from a Greek word, which just means thanksgiving, like when on the on the um, when Christ gathered with his disciples, he broke the bread and gave thanks, and he he offered the chalice and gave thanks, and so the giving so in of thanks. Greek Bibles? Did they say he gave Eucharist? Yeah, the Eucharist, Eucharistia. Okay. Yeah, that's right. So that's where it originates. It's not even a Latin word, so ha, yeah. it's a Greek word. So we'll claim it as orthodox. Okay. But it really is. That's the original terminology. The word communion, uh, koinonia, it means more like um, fellowship. You know, or people say koinonia in in America. But yeah, in Greek it's kinonia. And I mean, we find communion with one another when gathering around the Lord's table, for sure. When receiving the Holy Eucharist. But uh, they are two distinct things. But sometimes we even refer to it as, I received Holy Communion today or something. There's nothing wrong with that either. Again, we're not weirdly legalistic or superstitious. You'll find that there's a lot of freedom in Orthodoxy. For As as traditional as we are, we don't get bent out of shape over little things like that either. It's like, do I know what you're talking about? Yes, I do, you know. And then we have uh, St. Irenaeus of Leon who says, For where the church is, there is the Spirit of God. And where the Spirit of God is, there is the church in every kind of grace. The Spirit is truth. Therefore those who have no share in the Spirit are not nourished and given life at their mother's breast. The church is likened to a mother. Nor do they enjoy the sparkling fountain that issues from the body of Christ. So from the early days of the church, there's been a a strong conviction about what the church is. And it's, again, not not merely according to our preference. And that's kind of our problem in in our Western world, is that we are so... We're we're consumers, and so the church has taken on a real consumeristic character. I kind of joke about the marketability of orthodoxy, you know, like... uh, I like to say that asceticism isn't very marketable. It's kind of a hard sell. You know, we fast from meat, dairy, wine, and cheese. You know, I mean, cheese, eggs for half of the year. Doesn't that sound fun? Come on, get on board. We do lots of prostrations at times. We stand in long services. You used to go to a church that had recliners and an espresso machine? Well, at least our church is carpeted. But some just have tile floors. You know what I mean? Like, you you really have to you have to be looking for the real thing because it's not, it's, it's not something that we can ease. It's not a product that we have to sell. You know, orthodoxy is, is not. Now, you can, people try to sell salvation all the time. Fun salvation. No, salvation is not, that, not fun, though. It's not actually very marketable, but it is honest, and it's the desire of the heart to draw near to God. But I'm so broken. You know how do how do I do that? What does that look like? And that's that transitions into mentioning that that's again why we re, why we refer to the church as a hospital, it's a spiritual hospital. It's a place where the rehabilitation of the soul image of God takes place. Um, a real therapy, a real he- healing takes place. But then I like to add it can take place if you want it to. You can approach orthodoxy as a consumer and say, we found the original church, it's the historical faith, the best, it's the best, you know. We have the, mo- the best hymns and the theology and we have the saints. and Nice, but it's like, I like to tell people, the saints didn't do it so that you don't have to. Christ didn't do it so that you don't have to. We get to participate and the loving life of self-sacrifice—that's—that's um, that's actually part of how our healing takes place, not just by being fed, but by feeding in return. You know, we love because we've been loved, and a lot of us would rather go around tooting our horn, saying, "I am loved." You know what I mean? It's like, you are loved—that's true—but it's better to be love, to be transformed into a living love rather than. A consumer, again. Someone who's just receiving something and satisfied by it. That's not enough. There's, there's more. We need to know that we're loved. We need, there is a sense of satisfaction, no doubt. So, But I'm just saying, that's not it. That's not all that there is. So, what are you doing over there? Uh, I was just going to ask, like, so do you think the, the emphasis on It is, and it is post enlightenment too. It's a real fixation on the individual. Yeah, yeah. Because look, if you go even pre, you know, I, I'm not, I'm not an anthropologist and a historian, but but if you look at long-standing old world cultures, I mean, what is the healthy per, Who is the healthy person? the person who is with their fa- multi-generational families, people who, that's what's natural to men, to be together. And so that, that warmth is something that we a lot of us are looking for, but a lot of times we're Americans, we're bumbling our way through it, we're trying to figure out even what it means to have a community, because we've been raised with such a rampant individualism, and we don't live that way. We don't live... Again, with, you know, your grandparents, your parents, and the children in the home, to all taking care of each other. You know? I mean, there are some of us that are only raised by one parent. <laughs> yeah, exactly. That's, so we have a very different experience of community than people from other cultures as well. So there are elements that make, that make it hard for us to understand that paradigm of life. But that's not to say... You shouldn't, um, like, seek salvation even when no one else is, around you isn't. You know what I mean? So, not to create another false dichotomy. Like because, we, we, because then we enter into the communion of the saints. You know, that, that is the community that, that becomes um, our, our home. And it is funny. People, people are very transient these days. You know, you used to have a real sense of place. Like the, it's, it's not just what I get out of the place, but it's the place itself. There's, there's something holy. There's something meaningful about all the blood and the tears that have been shed here. All of the memories that have taken place. All the babies that have been born here. One of, um, one of our past members who's passed away... When he became Orthodox, he really had that sense of community here. And at one point, some people decided to move, move away, like get a little out of, out of Seattle area. And I remember this guy sincerely looking at me and saying, how could someone just leave their family like that? It was really touching, you know, to me that he would, that he would feel that way. He was kind of grieving that, like, I could never do that. How could someone just leave their family? So that was a a sweet moment that showed that he he had some purity of heart. This is a man, his name was Leonard. And a lot of of people felt like in a short time that he was with us, he became Orthodox. And then within a few years, I think he got cancer and passed away. But a lot of people thought that he had a, a degree of holiness. Plus, he had this really low, gentle voice that just drew you in. So he would say things like, don't dally with the demons. And he'd go, okay, I won't. You know. Anyway, let's talk a little bit about the ecumenical councils. I think we might be able to do this in 10 minutes, I'm not sure. Ten and a half. Ecumenical councils. During the early years of the church, when a dispute arose concerning whether or not Gentile converts should be circumcised, which was the Jewish practice, the apostles met together in Jerusalem to resolve the issue in Acts 15. And this council set the precedent for all future gatherings of the church's leaders. As the church grew and spread throughout the Roman Empire, it became necessary for the bishops of churches in a given area to meet together on a regular basis. Address issues of common concern. Apostolic Canon 34 provides for the creation of a regional synod. Again, synod is a gathering of bishops. The bishops of a given area were to gather together twice a year. The meetings were to be chaired by the bishop of the major city in the area, that metropolis. So the bishop of this city became known as the metropolitan. Each bishop was responsible for the governance of his church. Issues of common concern, however, were brought before the regional synod. So like an example would be, like the people don't like Father Jeremiah anymore. You know, he, his homilies are too long. And they're complaining about it. Then the bishop would, don't get any ideas. The bishop, but the bishop would, he would deal with those local, he would come and talk to me and, you know, Father, you know, the people, what's going on? Maybe you need to teach a class and keep the homilies 20 minutes or less or something like that. You know, I read a book once that said six to 10 minutes is good. That's like me saying hi to you. Anyway, I did an 11 minute one a couple of weeks ago. That surprised me. But uh, anyway, so to deal with like local little issues like that, but like when, when there was an outbreak of heresy or something like that, and, and the people in the multiple churches were starting to get confused, the bishops would come together to make decisions about where we stand, and how are we going to speak to our people to keep them unified, to keep them together. You know, how does the Holy Spirit want to continue to govern the church um, through, through our leadership? So... The Metropolitan did not rule the Synod, but he, he did have veto power over the Synod's decisions. Like the, because even church leaders can fall into del- delusion. You know? They can fall into, f- like, fear can dominate people who are in positions of authority. Like, say, like things like this have happened. If you, if you don't agree with what we're saying, it might be a heresy, we're going to kill all of you. But if you say if you say that Christ seemed to be a man but wasn't truly, you can just carry on with your life as normal, and you don't even really have to believe it. Just say it, and your life will be spared. You know what I mean? And there's a big temptation. Well, if I can protect my people. We can kind of we'll just pretend, or you know we'll just kind of go with the flow and end up compromising your faith and your integrity in the midst of it. So. It happens, and there were there there have been uh, like Saint Mark of Ephesus is famous for, for disagreeing with a council of of lead, church leaders who were seeking help from the the bishop of Rome from the Pope, um, because they were being just they were, their people were being attacked by the barbarians and you know they needed military aid. And they were basically willing to compromise their faith in order to sign on the dotted line to get military aid from the west and saint mark of ephesus said we no, we can't do that and so anyway just as nothing within a given church could be done without the bishop's approval so nothing could be done in a region that affected more than one church without the approval of the metropolitan so there's a system of accountability The Metropolitan then served as the principle of unity within the Synod. Some issues, however, such such as doctrinal questions, involved more than the churches of a particular region. For this reason, larger gatherings of bishops were called to deal with issues pertaining to the universal church. The largest and most important of these gatherings are called ecumenical councils. The word ecumenical comes from uh, the Greek word Ecumene, which basically means like the inhabited world, the civilized world, sometimes it 's translated as civilized world. The ecumenical councils were originally convened in the Roman by the Roman Emperor and presided over by a senior bishop. The Orthodox Church recognizes seven councils as being ecumenical we'll get a, a, a quick summary of them. The first council of Nicaea in the year 325. This council was called to deal with the heresy of Arianism, the teaching that the Word and the Son of God is a created being. The first part of the Nicene Creed was drafted then. The hero of Nicaea was St. Athanasius of Alexandria, whose theology was decisive, even though as a deacon at the time, he could not vote. But he spoke. And so we we have the book On the Incarnation written by St. Athanasius, which is one of the classics. Look, from the very early days of the Church. And it's worth reading. It's a little harder book to read, but it's worth taking the time to read through that book. Constantinople I. in the year 381. This council expanded and completed the Nicene Creed and affirmed the divinity of the Holy Spirit. The theology of the Cappadocian fathers, St. Basil the Great, St. Gregory the Theologian, And St. Gregory of Nyssa was particularly influential here. Next one was Ephesus in the year 431. This council condemned the teachings of the patriarch Nestorius of Constantinople, who refused to accept the unity of humanity and divinity in the person of Christ. So, yeah, uh, yes. No, no, that's the next one. In 451 is when the... um, the uh, Oriental Church broke away. The next, I mean, they just didn't continue forward. It's not that they broke away, right? Well, they Did they, they fell out of communion with the Orthodox. They just stayed where they were. Yeah, they stayed where they were, but yeah, yeah but severed communion was severed, unfortunately. That's interesting. And that's that's Chalcedon, <clears throat> but so that's the Fourth Council. Um, so. Nestorius refused to call the Virgin Mary Theotokos, which means God-bearer, which is a a term that's important because it acknowledges that Christ is God, fully fully God and fully man. So she gave birth to the God-man. He wanted to call her Christotokos, not Theotokos. I'll say that she gave birth to Christ, but not God. And uh, so this is the Third Ecumenical Council. And the use of the term Theotokos didn't just all, all of a sudden like, show up in the 400s. What they're doing is they're commenting on something that has been a practice of the church for many years and solidifying the church's teaching about Mary, who Mary is, by way vis-a-vis who Christ is, who we believe Christ is, as the God-man. Chalcedon is the next one, 451. And this is what you were asking about. This council was called to combat the opposite heresy of Nestorianism, Monophysitism. According to the Monophysites, Christ's divine nature swallowed up his human nature, leaving him with only one nature. The bishops accepted what's called the Tome, a big document of Pope St. Leo the Great, along with the theology of St. Cyril of Alexandria as the standard of Orthodox thought concerning the person of Christ. The council decreed that in Christ, the divine and human nature exist without mixture, mixture, without confusion, division, or separation. When you hear that word Pope, uh, don't let the hairs on the back of your neck tingle too much. Pope is is a word that also means father, and it's been used traditionally for the Bishop of Rome, even before the schism took place. Now, if we use that term Pope, we're talking about the Bishop of Rome, um, the Roman Catholic Church. But even the Bishop of Alexandria is often referred to as Pope Theodoros, for example. So, Constantinople II in 553. This council further elaborated on the decisions of the Council, Council of Chalcedon. And in addition, some of the teachings of origin of Alexandria, such as the pre-existence of souls, were condemned. And then the third council of Constantinople in 681, this one condemned the heresy of monothelitism, which held that Christ only had one will. So Thelema in Greek means will. So if he was fully God and fully man, did he have a divine and a human will? And we've talked about this when we talked about the Incarnation. But they had to address all of these issues. All of these hinge on who we believe Christ to be. And what are the implications of that? Of his Incarnation? So the bishops affirm that Christ has a perfect human will as well as a perfect divine will. Thus affirming his full humanity. And Pope Honorius of Rome was condemned as a heretic for his support of the Monothelites. So... You know, there are bishops who behave badly. You know, there are people who make mistakes in leadership. And people who are in leadership and have authority, they actually are a great, at a great, uh, fall into great temptations at times. So there are bishops who have been saints, and there are bishops who have been heretics. And then the next is called the Quinisext Council. It be, happened between the 5th and the 6th Ecumenical Councils in 692. It's also called the Council of Trullo. And it's continued, considered a continuation of the 5th and 6th councils, not a separate council unto itself. And among other things, it reaffirmed the condemnation of the teachings of origin. And then we have the 2nd Council of Nicaea, 787. This council was called to decide the appropriateness of using icons in the church. The bishops decreed that the veneration, not worship of icons, they made a, a very, very, very important distinction between the two. But the venerations of icon, veneration of icons was necessary to preserve proper understanding of the Incarnation. You guys, I did it again. I did it again. We ran out of time. We've got a couple pages left, but we're not going to push through because I have some notes and things I want to comment on. So we'll finish up on this. Define veneration is the giving of, of respect to something. You know, a deep, like, respect for, for someone. But no, not treating them as if they are a god. You know, in, in the Orthodox tradition, there's absolutely no confusion between creator and creation. But we love God's creation as made by him. We appreciate it. And especially those who are in his image, you know, who we look up to. We, we honor them. So that's what the veneration is. I have a really, if you're interested in that, I have a good little article that I can share with you. I don't know if I have your contact information. I have. To, yeah, I'll have to get it and then I can send you. Do you get the catechism reminder emails? No? You must not. They come out usually on Saturday. I send an email reminding that we have class. You don't? Okay. I get, to, I get to, uh, <coughs> the, rest of the week, but I know that. I have a special little, like, catechism, inquirer catechism email group that I send out things to. Just little reminders, or, reminder, no class tomorrow, because of this or that. So it's kind of nice. I mean, it's usually kind of the same email. I just, I just changed the topic, the title that we're focusing on. So... Okay, stand up with me. We'll conclude with a prayer. And I will let you go. Excuse me. I have to find this prayer that I've been doing with you guys. Let us pray to the Lord. Lord, have mercy. O Lord, I know not what to ask of Thee. Thou alone knowest what my true needs are. Thou lovest me more than I myself know how to love. Help me to see my real needs, which are concealed from me. I dare not ask for either a cross or a consolation. I can only wait on Thee. My heart is open to Thee. Visit and help me for Thy great mercy's sake. Strike me and heal me. Cast me down and raise me up. I worship in silence Thy holy will and Thine inscrutable ways. I offer myself as a sacrifice to thee. I put all my trust in thee. I have no other desire than to fulfill thy will. Teach me how to pray. Pray thou thyself within me. Amen. through the prayers of our Holy Fathers, Lord Jesus Christ, our God, have mercy on us and save us. Amen. God bless you all. Go in peace. I'll see you again soon.